The scripture for today's sermon comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. The word of God speaks to us. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Madison. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with y'all. My name is Dave Adair. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Church in Edmond, and we are taking the beginning of 2024 to talk about on Sundays, for a few Sundays, our mission as a church. Um, JJ, Pastor JJ, Dr. JJ Side last week took us through the, the first part of that mission, multiplying gospel communities, and then today I get the honor of talking about loving God which is at the very heart of our mission. What does it mean to love God? And uh, this text, my heart always gravitates toward when it comes to talking about this topic, this subject of God's love and, and loving God. So looking at John 4 is going to help give us answers to what it means to be a church who loves God. So I want to pray for you, you pray for me, and then we'll dive into this text together. Psalm 1918, Heavenly Father, calls us to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And that's our prayer this morning. The, the Spirit of God, you would open our eyes that we would see the wonder, the majesty of the word of God to Jesus, that you would be glorified in this, this sermon and in our time together. And we thank you that just in your sovereign grace, you've led all of us here 10.30, to be in this room together, to hear this text together. That's not an accident, but it's your, your loving kindness. And so I pray that we would have open eyes and soft hearts to receive, to hear, to see all that you have for us. And I pray simply that you would help me help my friends see the beauty of God's love this morning. We pray this, God, in your name. Jesus, we pray this in your name. And to together, God's people said, amen, amen. Let's just go back to what seventh grade biology just for a moment to begin. Our bodies, um, it's hard to nail this down, but according to my deep research this week, 70% water in our bodies. That means that our brain, according to studies, is 75% water. Our blood is 83% water. Our heart is what? 79% water. Even our bones, 
made up of 22% water. Disturbingly to me, 95% of our eyeballs are water. I don't know how they stay in, but according to doctors and scientists, that's reality. We can't live without water. We can go weeks and weeks without food, but only a few days without water. We need water for life. And I say all that to kind of set the stage for this story because we rarely experience in our context and our culture extreme thirst like ancient people did. And this is an ancient story with people experiencing a desperate, life-dependent thirst. Jesus is thirsty in this story. A woman is thirsty in this story. This is a story about a desperate need for water, yet in this passage, Jesus is going to say that he has the power to give each and every one of us something that we need even more than our bodies need water. Here, Jesus engages a woman to teach her and to teach us about worship, about what it means to receive the love of God and to live in the love of God. So my aim is to actually help us see five things today. And the first thing for us to see is this as we explore this text. Loving God begins with the grace of God. Loving God, our mission to love God, it begins with God's grace. The story begins with Jesus and his disciples. They're leaving Judea and they're heading north towards the region of Galilee. Ultimately, this trip is going to be 125 miles. It's not by car or plane or train. It's not even by donkey because these are men who are experiencing poverty. They're walking 125 miles and at this moment in the journey, they have, they've reached a, a region, Samaria, a town, Sychar, which has a well, Jacob's well. And it is a, a, a gift, a needed place in this journey because they've come to a well, Jacob's well. It's a well with a history, but it's a source of water. And at this point in their journey, Jesus and his disciples have already walked over 50 miles. They've likely been on this journey walking for at least two, probably three days at this point. So just empathize. Imagine they're not wearing hokas. They're wearing thin leather sandals. They've been on the road walking for days and they reach this well. And as Madison read, the time of the day is the sixth hour, which is high noon. It's the heat of the day. The sun is blazing. And Jesus tired. He sits down in the dirt. He sends his disciples into town to bring him back food. He's alone, leaning against the well. And as he's there, down in the dirt, this woman approaches and Jesus looks at her in the face and he says, give me a drink. And she's shocked, right? This, the, this text reads her surprise and it doesn't seem strange to us, but it is strange to her. And it would be strange to anybody watching. She's shocked because in this moment of history, there are barriers upon barriers upon barriers of cultural and ethnic and moral walls between she and Jesus. The first is this, that Jesus is a Jew, obviously, and she's a Samaritan, obviously. And Samaritans and Jews were complete enemies at this time. They were racially and religiously and politically divided. 
And the quick history is this, that hundreds of years before, Samaritans actually found their origin as the Jewish people. They are the distant cousins of the Jews. But as a hundreds of years before, as a nation, an empire, Assyria conquered the northern nation of Israel, and they took many people into exile, the people that were left behind, the remnant. What they did, again, hundreds of years earlier, is they intermarried and mixed with surrounding people and culture. And they kind of took their Jewish religion and heritage and it became a cocktail of the surrounding religions and heritages of the people around them. And that is the origin of the Samaritan people. So they they had like a a shared history in some part, but they had a a mixed belief. They had rejected essentially the faith of the Jews. They had rejected all the writings of the Old Testament except for the, the five books, the Torah, the books of Moses, the law. And they had rejected the temple and the ways of worship of the Jews. And they had built their own temple and ways of worship on Mount Gerizim. And so at this point in history, it's hard for us to wrap our hearts and minds around, but there is an extreme animosity between Jews and Samaritans. There's accounts in history uh, with Josephus around this point of time about Romans having to quelch riots between Jews and Samaritans. There's deep and furious division and animosity. So the average Jew would avoid Samaria altogether. If they had to go through Samaria, they certainly wouldn't engage a Samaritan in a conversation, and they sure as heck wouldn't consider sharing a cup with one. And Jesus is doing all these things, and she's blown away. She's shocked. Not just, though, that Jesus is a Jew and she's a Samaritan. Jesus is a man and she's a woman. And in ancient society, whether it was Greek or Roman, whether it was Samaritan or or Jewish at the time, Ancient cultures were most often cultures that were misogynistic. And Jesus himself is going to radically challenge and change that. But since Jesus is a man and she is a woman, she's surprised that a man would engage her in conversation. But most importantly, the the third thing we need to realize, the barriers that stand between them, is that she's an outcast. And this isn't obvious to us because if we need water, we just go to the faucet But in the ancient world, life revolved around water. Daily rhythms were driven by a need for water, to drink, to bathe, to clean. And in cultures like ancient Samaria, women would go in the beginning of the day, in the early cool of the day, and then also again at dusk in the the shade of evening, and they would go together to receive water, to take back water. It's a, it's a scene like this. We have a picture that conveys what this would look like in ancient culture. It was a vital trip. They needed water to live, but it was also a social trip. The well was like the ancient version of the, the pickup line at school for moms or the local coffee shop. The, the well was the original water cooler, right? <laughs> People would gather around not just to get a drink, but to spend time with one another. So it's weird that she's there alone. And she's not there at the regular time. She's there in the middle of the day. And that is intentionally something that she's doing. And Jesus will reveal why in detail, but she's alone because she's a a moral outcast, a social pariah. 
By Jewish and Samaritan standards, she was considered a sinner. And we imagine what has happened in her past is that when she would go in the mornings with the other women or in the evenings with the other women, she would hear the subtle whispers of gossip and giggles and sneers and jokes. And she was shunned and pushed away. And so she just decided one day in her heart, they don't want to be with me. I don't want to be with them. I'll go when no one's here. I don't need any of these other women. And so she goes to this well and she goes wanting to be alone, thinking she's going to be alone, and yet she isn't alone. There's a man in the dirt leaning against the well, looking her in the eye, and he's asking, give me a drink. And all these barriers between her and Jesus, he's breaking through each and every one intentionally to reach her. It's as if Jesus has led by the Spirit, actually cultivated, set up this encounter, sending his disciples away so he can have a private audience with this woman to break through all those barriers because he knows that she needs what she deeply is thirsty for, God's love. He's breaking through all those barriers so she can experience God's love. Jesus does this all the time. Again and again in the Gospels, from beginning to end, he's breaking through barriers that exist between people and God so that people will encounter the very love of God. And Jesus does this because the love of God is a gift. The love of God begins with God's grace. It's not earned. It's not something we deserve. It's given freely, not because we're good and we earn it, but because he's good. So our mission to love God begins with God's love being given to us. 1 John 4.19 says, we love God because he, he first loved us. We see that at work even in this story. Take a moment just to, to imagine you're there. Take a moment and imagine that you are viewing Jesus. He's walked over 50 miles Jesus, Messiah, Savior of the world, the very Son of God, fully God and fully human. Where do we find him in this moment? He's sitting in the dirt and his, his feet are calloused and cracked. He reeks of B.O. His thighs are burning and chafed. He's sweaty. His hair is stuck to his face. Surely he's in pain, he's tired, he's hungry, he's above all thirsty, he's asking for water, but as we see, what is his ultimate concern? What is he working towards? He's concerned with this woman. He's working towards her experiencing God's love. Ultimately and always, love is sacrificial. We don't love anything that we won't sacrifice for. And as we look at what Jesus is doing here, we, we see that at work and alive in his words, in his action, in his heart. First John also says in First John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And even here in this story, can you see it? Jesus Christ is laying down his life for someone who needs to know God's love. The Son of God isn't in heaven on a throne. He's sitting in the dirt 
He's suffering. He's walking a road of hardship so that this woman can receive his grace. Loving God doesn't begin with what we do. It begins with what God has done. God's love is the gift of grace. And so Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so what happens next? Let's, let's pick up in the text, verse 11. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and, and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. See, she's not tracking with Jesus at all. She's not on the same page. Jesus is saying, hey, you shouldn't be amazed that I'm, I'm asking you for water. You actually should be amazed at what I can offer you that I can give you something that will satisfy the very thirst of your soul. But again, she's not on the same page. She's not on the same level. He's talking about something higher than her base need for water or deeper than that which is there to keep her alive, the very longings of the thirsts of her soul. But she's not understanding. And you can almost hear in the text like a dismissive tone. Yeah, give me that water so I don't have to come back here. Weird guy. So to help her understand, Jesus reaches her heart through the break in her heart. It's the second thing for us to see. Loving God meets our ultimate satisfaction. Our ultimate satisfaction is met in the love of God and, and in the love of God through our worship. Loving God meets our ultimate satisfaction. Verse 16 Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And as we read the story, we think, well, Jesus, that escalated quickly. Like, what is Jesus doing here suddenly telling her to go and get her husband? Why is he changing the subject? And I think a key to understanding what's happening here, a key to understanding our own heart is to understand that Jesus isn't changing the subject. Jesus is still talking about her thirst. Jesus is not changing the subject. He's right on point. Jesus is trying to talk about her spiritual thirst. She's uninterested. She's aware of her physical need for water. She's not aware of a spiritual need for living water. She's saying, I need this well water. I don't need whatever ethereal spiritual water you're talking about. And Jesus says, okay, really? Go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, I know you don't. You've, you've, you've had five and 
You're now with a man that's not even your husband. And we don't know the details of her story. Maybe she's cheated on these men again and again. Maybe she's been mistreated and men have left her and abandoned her again and again. Perhaps she's been sinned against over and over. But regardless of the details, this is what's happening. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus is discerning in her life, in her heart, that she's been seeking something to satisfy her soul in in marriage or romantic relationship and sex and in the arms of men. And she's longed for that satisfaction to come through romance. And again and again, it's let her down. And Jesus knows that. And he's saying, you do have a soul thirst and it's not being quenched. Go and get your husband husband. She's thirsty for love, and Jesus is helping her to see that her actual thirst for love is a thirst for the love of God. And so he's, he's lovingly reaching her heart through the brokenness of her heart to say, hey, sister, your problem is a worship problem. Your sins, your wounds, they need to be understood as a a worship issue. And Jesus looks at our hearts just like this woman's heart, and we all have the same reality. Maybe it's not looking for satisfaction through romance like it was in her life, but it's something. Maybe it's overspending. And our, our increasingly chaotic finances can't be solved with just a better app on our phone to track expenses in more detail. We have to realize that we spend and we consume and we buy because it's a worship issue and we think more stuff will satisfy the longings of our soul. Maybe it's pornography and we have to realize that our addiction to porn and that Sin struggle isn't simply fixed by the right accountability software, but first and foremost, it's a worship issue. And we're going to this poison well of online porn to try to satisfy something in our soul that only Christ can satisfy, only the love of God can meet. He can only bring peace and fulfillment. Or maybe it's good things like career or job, but we look to those things to satisfy our soul. If I reach this level of success, then my ultimate longing and meaning will be satisfied. I, I usually defer to Anna when we watch television together, and I was just selfish this week, and I, I made her watch alongside me, and she didn't really watch it. She just left a, a documentary called The Real Rocky. And it was about a guy named Chuck Wepner who just like Sylvester Stallone plagiarized his life for the story of Rocky. It's an amazing, he's, a, he's just like a, a working class New Jersey guy that actually went 15 rounds with Muhammad Ali when nobody thought he had a chance. And, and the, the, his life in great detail is what the fictional story of Rocky is based upon. But they showed this clip from the movie Rocky in the documentary where that character is laying in bed and he says, hey, if I just go the distance with Apollo Creed, if I don't get knocked out and I can survive to the end of this fight, then I'll know that I'm finally somebody and I'm not just some bum from the street. And we all have that longing that we wrestle with. If I, if I can acquire this thing, if I can have this success, if I just go to this place, then I have value or worth and the longings of my soul will be met. Everyone struggles with searching for something to be satisfied apart from God. With this woman, it was romance 
But for each and every one of us, before God, by the power of the Spirit, we should ask, hey, Spirit, help me discern what it is for me. What do I long for apart from the love of God to satisfy my soul? What do I think I need in addition to or above what I find in God to really satisfy the thirst of my soul? And Jesus is showing this woman and us only one thing satisfies, and that's the love of God. Only one thing quenches our deepest thirst, and that's God's love made known to us in Christ Jesus. Let's keep moving the third thing. Loving God calls us to truly know God. So verse 19, Jesus lays out the details of her life before her and her response is, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Which to me is hilarious and like almost impressive. I want to take her to the card game with me. I feel like she has a great poker face, right? She has to internally be like thoroughly shook, but she looks at him and I I perceive you're a prophet, sir. It's like, yes, he is, right? And then what happens next is interesting. A lot of commentators are going to say that, is, is this something again, like we thought earlier, is maybe Jesus changing the subject? And, and, and I would say most commentators are going to say here that she is definitely changing the subject and she's doing that thing that we often do, which is like, hey, things are getting a little personal. Let's talk about something really theological. Community groups getting really, really real, getting really medley, and let's be like, let me talk about this weird abstract Old Testament verse real quick. Don't look there, look over here. Maybe that's what's happening. But I think there's actually a good chance that she recognizes, she doesn't fully understand who Jesus is yet, but she certainly is beginning to understand that he has the truth of God and the power of God, and so she brings to him immediately her most pressing theological question, the most pressing theological question of her people's day, and the one that is a point of contention between Jesus's people and her people. And the question is, hey, What does worship look like? What does right worship look like? Specifically, where should we worship? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Gerizim, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus gives her a straight answer to an important question. Thank God we get straight answers to important questions. May we grow in giving straight answers to important questions. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Where she worshiped was her concern And Jesus is saying, look, before we talk about where, we need to talk about who, because your worship is actually rooted in fantasy. It's not reality. You worship what you don't know. You love what you don't know. And as a result, your love isn't real because your affections aren't driven by the reality of who God is. The Samaritans' view of God was wrong. They worshiped a version of God that was one of their own making. They rejected most of God's word and they they were picking and choosing what to believe and they created an imaginary God of their own preferences. And this isn't a Samaritan problem. This is very much an American problem. In and out of the church. 
How often do we hear people say or often say ourselves, for me, God is... The combination of those two things, for me, God is, is a scary combination as if God could be customized or relativized to our preferences and liking and and we make God in an image that we want him to be. But the reality is God is who he is. We can't change him to our liking. He changes us to his liking. We can't make him in our image. We're made in his image. And Jesus is saying, worshiping and loving God requires really knowing the one true God. So our mission to love God means we grow to know God more and more, who he truly is, and our affections are rooted in the reality of his character and his nature. To illustrate this, I I wanted to share a story about a lunch with me and my dad. I asked him if I could share this, um, and he he gave me permission. If it's my kids, I just tell it, but if it's my dad, I have to get permission to use family as an illustration. But it it was over 20 years ago. I'm 42, so I was in college, probably 23 years ago. I was probably 18, 19 at the time, and my dad and I were just out to lunch. And as we're out to lunch, a a young African-American man, he's probably five, six, seven years older than me at the time, he approaches the table and uh, he just has an interaction with my dad. And uh, we stand up and greet him. I'm introduced to him. And he just says something in parting when when we've had the introductions and they have a little conversation. He just says something along the lines of, I really appreciate all you've done for my family. It was good seeing you. And then he, he leaves, we sit back down. And so I asked the obvious question. It's like, hey, who was that? And, and what did that mean? What did you do for his family? And just in passing, just without any fanfare, my dad quickly told me like the story. And the story was we had, we had as a family moved to that city for my dad to manage a radio station. That's what he vocationally did. And the, the station that he was managing was uh, like a premier radio station in the city, one of the biggest radio stations in the city. And as he arrived, early after he arrived to begin to, to run that radio station, he got an invitation to like a, a council of radio station managers and owners, like for the city. They all got together uh, at some regular rhythm. And so he got an invitation to that. And then as he, as he was viewing kind of who was on the list to partake in it, he, he saw quickly that there was a, a black-owned radio station that w- w- had the demographic of the black community in Oklahoma City in mind, and that general manager was not a part of the list. And so my dad asked, hey, why isn't this manager a part? Why doesn't this owner come? And the people who were part of it just said, oh, we've, we've never asked him. And so my dad said, well, I'll come when you invite him to come. And so they did. And my dad did. And there were some other details of like how radio stations technically work that I don't even understand that my dad went out of his way to help this particular station achieve and, and be resourced with. He was just a friend to them. And it wasn't a big deal to him. He just told the story. And half the time I just told it. So I would know why that young man said what he said. But it was an example of me sitting with my earthly father and even as a 20-year-old still learning new things about who he is and what he's done. And I didn't love my dad more, but I had more reasons to love my dad. It was honorable. It was good. It was just. It fueled my affections for him. In a real way, 
That's what we're called to do in the love of our heavenly father. We sit with him. We learn more things about him and those true things about his nature, his character, they fuel our affections for him, rooted in the reality of who he is and what he's done. So here's a question for us. How are we growing in the knowledge of our heavenly father? How are we growing in the knowledge of of Christ our savior? How are we growing in the knowledge of God the spirit? How are we growing in the knowledge of God? Literally preaching to the choir in a real way. Like, hey, what we're doing in this moment is good and right. Regularly gathering as the family of God to sit under the preaching of God's words on uh, God's word on Sunday to remember or to learn what's, what's true about who he is and what he's done. Asking, are we a part of a women's discipleship group or a men's discipleship group that isn't just gathering regularly to, to share burdens and to, to, to pray for one another, all of that which is really important, but, but gathering to, to study God's word together in family as brothers and sisters, asking, am I personally taking time regularly to open God's word in in secret in the morning with coffee at night before I go to bed in the slow moments of my day to, to, to engage my heart to learn things that are true about God and what he's done and what that means for me? Quickly, fourth thing. Loving God is what God desires for us. Our our mission to love God is a heart of our mission because that's what God wants for us and from us. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And truth. I heard Pastor Sam Storm speak about this idea and this verse years ago, and I've always remembered it. I'm so thankful for it. It was profound for me because he asked a simple yet like an amazing question. And the question Dr. Storms asked was, What does God want from you? Have you ever thought about that? What does God want most from you? We get an answer to that question here in this text. God, the Heavenly Father, he's seeking true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth, meaning God's desire is for us to live our lives in such a way that we show how awesome he is in everything that we do. That God wants lives that are lives of worship to him. And if that's what God wants, what does that say about God? If what God wants most from you is for you to live a life that makes the most of him, does that mean that he is in need of our affirmation in some way? Is he like insecure? (laughs) And he's like, hey, you guys just, I need all of you to tell me I'm okay. Is he just really arrogant? Is he a bully? And he insists on, everybody needs to live first and foremost to tell me how awesome I am because that's how it is. No, he's not insecure. He's not arrogant. He doesn't need anything from any of us. But this is the reality of the nature of God. He is in his perfection and in his majesty and in his wonder and in his goodness. He is the most 
perfect thing in all of the universe, and he loves us in unimaginable ways. And since he loves us in such extravagant and unimaginable ways, what he wants for us is us to have the very best thing in the universe. And he is the very best thing in the universe. And so he's moved heaven and earth for us to have him. Christ has has come, the very Son of God, for us to know God, what it means to to have God's love. And and the Spirit of God works in our life for us to, to understand the love of God and to grow in the love of God. To love God is at the heart of our mission because our good God, who's the best thing in the universe, wants the best for us, and he's the best thing. That's a big thought. But finally... Five, loving God leads us to pour out praise. Look at what happens with this awesome woman. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am he. Your Savior, your Lord, your King, your hope, your rescuer. It's me right here down in the dirt with you. Breaking through the barriers that you may know God's love. What do we do with something that we love? What does she do? Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town, out of the town, and were coming to him. See, when we hear like a song that's amazing, when we read a book that's powerful and, and moves our heart, when we have a meal that's, that's just rich and good When we watch a movie and we love it, we always go, whatever it is, and we share that experience with somebody else. We tell somebody else about that experience. What we love, what we enjoy, we always share. We always tell somebody about something we love. It's not helpful because it doesn't play out like this but the, with most people. But the, the moment I met Anna that same day, I went home to my roommate, Jay Forrest, and I gave him a hug, which I'd never done before. And I said, I met my wife. And he was like, that's weird, right? You know, But I just knew right away that that, that was the girl for me. And I loved her already. And, and I barely knew her, but my heart was overflowing. I just had a sense like, I think I just met who God has for me. And I had to tell somebody. And I told Jay, we all do that with everything that we love. C.S. Lewis in Reflections Upon the Psalms, he writes this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. What this means for us is that our love for God is always going to overflow. As Jesus said earlier, it's going to be a wellspring of life that pours up out of us in the showing of that love and the sharing of that love for others. Like our need to share our faith isn't a duty, it's a delight, it's worship. We have to talk about our Savior to those far from him. She has to talk about her Savior She's on the cusp of understanding. Could this be the Christ? And it sends her running back to the people she was avoiding. 
She's laid down not just her water jug, but her shame. And overflowing in love, she goes to the community that she was isolated from and says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And what weighed her down in shame is now something that she freely holds up because she's experienced the love of God. So a final question regarding our worship. Where is the worship of God evident in our lives? Maybe we need to be encouraged. Maybe we need to be convicted. But the question is, where is the worship of God evident in our lives? When we enter into this room on Sunday mornings, are we experiencing genuine worship? Are affections overflowing because we're experiencing the love of God? In important everyday life, down in the dirt like this story, raising our kids, loving our spouse, working our jobs, Are we showing and sharing God's love in worship as we go about what he's called us to do? Like this woman in the story, who are we moving towards to share and to show who might be far from God in our lives? Look at this woman's response to God's love. She's received it. And then she, she overflows in the pouring out of praise. May we do the same. Let's stand and pray.